I think a lot of people would probably ask me what happened since 2016 because that was kind of when all of my bigger results kind of came around. I think that was a time when I was really just kind of going at it all in, trying to figure out what I wanted out of the sport. I wasn't really sure about, uh, you know, I was improving. Every time I raced, I was just getting a little bit faster and I wasn't really sure where the end was. Um, and so I was really motivated and excited to train hard and get that uh, extra little bit of performance. And uh, kind of as the year progressed, I kind of realized that it was time to start thinking about whether or not I wanted to take my pro card. This episode of the Smart Athlete Podcast is brought to you by Solpre, skincare for athletes. Whether you're in the gym, on the mats, on the road, or in the pool, we protect your skin so you're more comfortable in your own body. To learn more, go to soulpre.com. Today on this episode of the Smart Athlete Podcast, my guest has done quite a few things. In 2016, he was USA Triathlon's Sprint National Champion. He also booked a 70.3 win that year. Um, to be able to do both is actually something pretty special. Currently, he races for Team Everyman Jack and is in the middle of his PhD in Combustion Dynamics at Georgia Tech. Welcome to the show today, Chris Douglas. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Chris, um, having your accomplishments read out, which I'm sure is only like a, you know, a short snippet because I don't want to be too much of a cyber stalker for you. Um, how do you like – so like uh, there's a couple more 2016. You know, how do you look back on that and like what do you think about what you're doing today like are you still trying to capture that kind of performance you had then? Are you still at the same form? Like, how do you feel about your racing then compared to now or a couple of years later? I think a lot of people would probably ask me what happened since 2016 because that was kind of when all of my bigger results kind of came around. I think that was a time when I was really just kind of going at it all in, trying to figure out what I wanted out of the sport. I wasn't really sure about... Uh, you know, I was improving. Every time I raced, I was just getting a little bit faster, and I wasn't really sure where the end was. Um, and so I was really motivated and excited to train hard and get that uh, extra little bit of performance. And uh, kind of as the year progressed, I kind of realized that it was time to start thinking about whether or not I wanted to take my pro card. Mm -hmm. um, and I really like what I do for my PhD. And um, I, I don't really see a way where I could continue, or I didn't really see a way where I could continue um, to really push um, at the, the way I was um, in training um, for years and years as I would need to, and also continue to push in my PhD um, as I would need to to progress in that. Um, so I kind of, kind of came to a crux where I had to say, which one do I want more? Um, and I decided that well, I, I was helped by an injury, I guess. Um, but I, <laughs> I eventually decided uh, that, uh, you know, I am a PhD, I'm a student first, um, and I, I'm not closing off the idea of eventually pursuing, uh, a, I guess, a fuller career in triathlon. I don't know. I, I do it for fun. Um, and if yeah. I think, I think uh, you know, I could see myself having a lot, lot more fun in the pro field if I feel like I'm, re I'm ready for it and I can actually – you know, there's something kind of sacred about <laughs> calling yourself a pro triathlete. I don't, I don't think 
if I if I were ever a pro triathlete, I would not be a professional triathlete. I would be an elite triathlete where I would have a license to go out and push myself with people who could really, you know, whoop me and show me what a real triathlete is. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, if I if I get to that point where I think I can, you know, push myself in training to the way where I can kind of benefit from that, um, then I'm going to spring on it. But uh, as long as as long as I'm doing this, I don't really see that being a productive way. I think it'll just kind of drive me down in both my PhD and in uh, training if I'm not able to do both. And I know that, I mean, that the decision between the two, it, it seems like it's always tough. I don't know if you know um, Cecilia Davis-Hayes. So she was the, Todd referred me to her and, and um, she was the national champion for the women's side in the Olympic distance that same year that you won the sprint, um, the sprint championship. And I talked to her um, in another episode, and so she had just finished medical school, and like she had kind of put med school on pause a little bit, and was like doing research while she's racing pro, and is kind of struggling with the same thing. Like, does she continue? Does she not? Like, you know, how how do you parse out all those things? So I just think it's kind of interesting to figure out, you know, where everybody's priorities lie. You know, I I, I personally spent the last basically eight years trying to be a pro, and I'm not as fast as like you and Todd. It was more of a personal challenge, but I, like, I, I can certainly sympathize with the idea about being like a pro being kind of a sacred thing and in a similar aspect, like I, I, I didn't think about it in the sense that I would be a pro and earn money. Like I had never had, I never had the disillusion that I would earn money. Exactly. <laughs> I was just like, I just here to work as hard to get my ass kicked <laughs> as I can. Like that was the whole goal. Um, so yeah, I mean, well, like, so what, with the injury, was it like something major or? It was, it was a knee injury. I actually, okay. it's, it's been a couple of years and I, I don't remember exactly the details, but I remember I wasn't able to run for a while. And then mm -hmm. I also, uh, I guess I kind of took that kind of hard and kind of backed off of everything, even though really I could have kept swimming and probably cycling to some degree. Um, and I kind of backed off everything a little bit. Um, and then when I realized I wasn't really recovering from running as quickly as I'd hoped, um, I decided to start swimming more and then I started hurting my shoulder. Um, so I, then I actually had to back off of that and it kind of just started a cascade of a few things, which kind of took me through, uh, 20, uh, actually, uh, this was the kind of middle beginning of 2017. Um, and my 2017 year was probably one of my worst years last year I, I didn't do as many quite as many races but i had some good results um 2017 was definitely the kind of the struggle year um, and actually I, I was on everyman jack that year and i remember uh talking with rich and he was like man if you hadn't had a good uh 2016 you'd be off the team because it was it was a it, i i really underperformed in uh both in racing and in the balance it, i learned a lot of lessons that year which is, I mean, it was important and it's helped me since then, but uh, it was not a not a proud year for me, I guess. This is something I'm kind of curious about because I've not, with my own kind of allegiances as far as I have, you know, I have a skincare business, which doesn't directly compete with EMJ, but like I couldn't be a part of it because of that. I'm kind of curious, like how, like how did you get hooked up with them or like how did that all start? 
So it, it started because uh, I knew a guy through the collegiate racing scene, uh, Steve Mantel. Um, yeah. You may have heard of. Yeah. Um, and I I'm, I'm talked with him a little bit about it and uh, just seemed like it was a really good opportunity for him. Um, and I honestly didn't know anything about the brand until I talked to him. But after I talked to him, I went out and, you know, bought a thing of shampoo and liked it. And that was just kind of my introduction to, to what it is, did some research online and eventually found a couple more people to talk to. But my first like real experience with the team was actually when I was on the team um, at camp. And that was just like, it was like finding home. It was uh, the guys in that team are so, I don't know, organic. Like, I don't know, I, I've met, I've gone to so many races where, you know, you get beat by someone or you beat someone and you talk to him after the race and you're just like, man, I just don't really like that person. Um, <laughs> you know, they either, there's just something about the way they, their attitude towards the sport that kind of grinds your gears. Um, mm -hmm. And I feel like I've, maybe encountered that once or twice on the team and uh there's no names that stick out to me but i mean it's kind of weird right because everyone who's at the level of the point where they are you know most of the guys on emj um either have gone to kona or um probably could go well maybe not to kona but to the world championship in their you know preferred distance mm -hmm. um and uh i forgot what i was going to say exactly but uh I don't know, it's just everyone in that position is, at least in their head, super, you know, not humble, <laughs> super proud and, you know, aware that they are good. Mm -hmm. um, but it takes someone like an additional layer of, I don't know what you'd call it. it it's it's kind of, uh, I, I, I don't know how to describe it. It's just, you know, the ability to... Um, not really be humble because like deep inside you know that you're good and you're you're able to compete with people who might be you know better than you on some days and worse than you on others but you're able to convince yourself that on that day you're the best um and also to immediately after the race to turn that off and just you know recognize that neither of you is a better person because of it um and that everyone's kind of deserving of that respect and um the relationships that you can get by treating the sport that way, where um, you kind of push yourself to being the best you can on race day, but also respecting everyone else and respecting their pushing and watching them improve and get injured and spend a year in like 2017, mm -hmm. but who knows what. I don't know, just uh, it, it, it's made the, the whole triathlon experience for me a lot more of like a me kind of in a community of like-minded people rather than just like, me going to a race to do it I, I think i mean you can tell me if i'm off base here i know i've met uh, just like you said very like-minded people in the community it's almost just this very odd thing where i've kind of felt i don't want to say a loner because i've I, you know i've had plenty of connections with people growing up but just there's some kind of mentality that's like this a little bit crazy, but also that like ambitious and strong and, and not just a physical sense. It's like that, that ability where, like you said, you have to think that you're the best, but at the same time, there's this extra layer of strength where you are almost empowered by somebody else doing well. Yeah. Like you're not jealous of them doing well. You're like, that's awesome. Like, cause 
I think it's because you understand the suffering that they went through to achieve that. Even if you weren't able to, yeah. like you can appreciate the sacrifices that they made to get there. That's one of the great things about try. It's not like a sport where you can, you, I don't know. I feel like, cause like when I was little, I used to play basketball. Mm-hmm. And I, I didn't really like basketball so much because I was not on like a school team. I was on like a youth center team. Um, and it always felt like, I was maybe I wasn't this wasn't, you know, the sound reason, but uh, I would always find a way to convince myself that someone else in the team um, had like made the mistake that cost us the game or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, one of the nice things about triathlon is you can't really say that, uh, you know, people will say, oh, you know, there was a bunch of drafting or uh, I got beaten to swim or, you know, you come up with things, but uh to really like let go and just kind of say, you know, this is an individual sport and um, it's really fun to, to go out there with that mindset that anything that doesn't go right, at the end of the day, it's my fault. In some way, I wasn't prepared for whatever weird conditions may have led to that result. Mm-hmm. But it's always, it's you can always point at yourself as to why and not being able to look at someone else or point the finger anywhere else is kind of a humbling thing, especially like the first couple times where it happens. I remember my first race, I went into that really cocky. Um, I had started, I started in tries um, because I was an injured runner. Mm-hmm. Um, and I started, you know, the whole try basically up until the run, I thought, oh man, you know, I don't care who passes me right now. Cause when we get to the run, I'm going to pass him right back. I'm going so mm-hmm. fast. I'm going to go so fast in the run. And then I got to the run after biking and I just felt so awful. And I just remember thinking, wow, you know, these guys who, even, you know, the ones behind me are still running way faster than me. I'm like struggling to, to keep, uh, to keep running sometimes because I wanted to walk so bad and uh, <laughs> just kind of, you know, the going through that kind of mental struggle where you're like, wow, you know, I really didn't prepare for this mm-hmm. and just trying to never feel that way again, I think is the, one of the big motivators for training as hard as it takes to, to have a good race. Yeah, I know I've definitely felt that. Like the first time I did it at 70.3, it was at uh, Eagle Man. And not only had I, I, so I'd only gotten biked up to maybe 50, 55 miles, basically the race distance for the bike. Not only that, but it ended up being like 93 degrees. And that course, I don't know right. if you've not done that course, but there's no shade on that course. So there's no reprieve from the time you get out of the water till the time you cross the finish line. I ended yeah. up in the medical tent. And it was just like, cause you know, I, I too kind of like came in the line and I was like, like I'm hot shit. Like I'm going to get this done today yeah. and get my pro card and get it. And it was like, it's complete mess. And you know, ended up way off where I wanted to be. And um, it was definitely like, no, you're not as good as you think you are. And, yeah. and there's nobody to blame beside yourself for right. you know, not, not preparing properly. Exactly. Um, so you were talking about being injured in, in college, and I think I had seen that somewhere else. Um, I'm always kind of curious. It seems like injuries are kind of a common, uh, common thread with collegiate runners. Yeah. So I'm kind of curious, like, what do you think led to that? Um, I, you know, I, I just always like to hear about like kind of the environment, the culture of yeah. different, different schools and different kind of running clubs and what, what goes on, I guess. 
All right. Well, I was not like a stellar runner by any means. I was allowed to walk. I, I would say I annoyed the coach enough that he let me walk on the team. Okay. Um, just like sent him enough emails, I guess. And he felt um, bad enough for me that he let me walk on. Um, and I actually had a pretty a solid first year considering my ability. I was improving um, and I was enjoying myself. I wasn't getting injured. Um, and then right before the first track season, um, we were doing like some pre-workout drills in the field and I stepped in a molehill and it just kind of tweaked my foot weird and I ended up getting a tear in some of the ligaments in my foot and that set off just sort of a chain of, I mean that took a long time to heal and that set mm -hmm. off kind of a chain of associated injuries in the other foot and then back in that foot and I just uh, I don't think I was ever really a hundred percent healthy for another that, that was the only cross country season I had and I tried a couple other track races but I was never really like a hundred percent healthy mm -hmm. for any of them um, so after I was injured for a year, um, and then I had kind of a mostly healthy summer and then right at the end of the summer, something else came back. Um, and I decided to walk off after that point. Um, but as far as, uh, like I've heard horror stories and I, I know some horror stories from people who I knew in college, um, who I ran with in college, um, where they were just kind of driven to the point where you know, they, they couldn't help but be injured. Um, mm -hmm. I wasn't really like an asset to the team. So I wasn't really pushed, I think, to that level where I felt like I had to, you know, put myself at risk to do it. I just happened to get unlucky and get injured, I guess. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's it's not like that doesn't happen. It, it's just kind of the, the, the way I think that that sport Maybe, you know, it should, maybe it shouldn't work that way, but I, it's not for me to decide how it should work. It's just kind of how it works in the current mm -hmm. system is like you got to have X runners. And uh, if you're going to even if you do everything perfect and your training plan is, you know, just right and no one's overtraining and all that stuff, there's still fluke injuries that just happen. Um, yeah. And you have to have a, a, you know, stable full of runners that can go out there and do it if one person can't. So I think that kind of maybe makes it worse, but uh, it's also just part of the nature of the sport. I mean, football, basketball, athletes have injuries. It's just kind of the way it works. And the NCAA definitely has its problems, but I, I, I think that most of the athletes who are getting those injuries would say that, you know, they were doing what they wanted to do and they got hurt. Not... I don't think it was, you know, their coach was like, you know, in, in the general case, of course, mm -hmm. specific cases, but like in general, the interactions I've had, it's felt like people got hurt because they were doing what they liked and they got unlucky or they overtrained or whatever. Mm -hmm. I, I would not blame my coach for anything that happened to me. I, I, I'd credit him for giving me a chance to walk on. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's like, I, I so I, I mean, I was injured various amounts of ways from, freak injuries um i was attribute this particular injury it was right before um conference my senior year cross country like pulled my hamstring it's the week of conference yeah. and that essentially prevented me from making the national championship the only time i would have you know i was fast enough to make the national championship but there are other times where we had a culture of we had 
a different coach from my freshman year to my sophomore year. We changed coaching staff and like the distance group was very, very small, meaning there was me and one other guy and then some girls that had mostly walked on. So um, there's kind of not as many serious people and uh, I had gotten injured and the coach was so used to listening to, I call it fishing for workouts. Some of the girls would be like, oh, coach, I don't want to do that today. Let's do something else. Like so much of that. Wow. Yeah. That he didn't want to, he didn't believe me when I said I was injured. And I ended up like basically running myself lopsided where you could see the difference in the size of my legs. Cause I was like, like I was serious about it. So I was like, you tell me to go run eight miles, I'll go run eight miles. If I got to limp through eight miles, I'll, I'll do that. And that was just, I wouldn't blame him in the sense that I would be like, oh, he caused it. But it was this kind of interesting mix of culture that created the environment for that to happen. Yeah. So I'm always just like, you know, and I know I've heard of other coaches throwing people into 100 mile weeks when they're not really prepared for it. And that leads to injuries. So it's always just kind of curious to me, you know, what led to that for everybody? Because it's always different. Um, just kind of, I don't know interest of mine having been injured so many times yeah Yeah, i this was again based on my experience so i didn't mean to like say that everyone no 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 no. i just kind of share my own background (laughs) yeah yeah it's interesting um so one of the things like i'm always interested in and i i spoke to um gentleman called uh, named uh, dr jason carp he's like I'll call him a running expert. He's written a bunch of books on running and has a running certification he does and all this kind of thing. And I talked to him about his book, um, The Inner Runner, and it talks a lot about kind of the mental aspect of running and, you know, pushing your limits, learning about life and that kind of stuff. So I I actually want to go back a couple of years. I think this is a story that should be told, or I kind of want to hear it from you. I think it's the Music City Triathlon in Nashville. Oh, geez. <laughs> you, you know what I'm talking about? So I, 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 could you take us through that story? Take us to that race as much as you recall. Okay. Um, so that was a case where, um, so I guess I, I wanted to go to that race because I knew um, the guy who was going to win it if I wasn't there. And he ended up winning it. Spoilers. Um, <laughs> but uh, I, I knew Tony White is his name. He, I'm not sure if, I don't think he's a pro triathlete anymore. I think he's doing a bunch of trail runs now. Um, but at the time he was kind of the, one of the faster pros, um, in the Southeast region. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I wanted to go there to test myself against him. Um, and so going in, you know, the whole right week leading up, I was just kind of preparing myself to hurt. Like I'd never hurt before. And you know, just basically never let him go. Um, and then on race day, uh, we got our numbers and it was a time trial start. And so I knew he started about a minute in front of me. Mm-hmm. So at that point, I just said, okay, you know what, whatever you do, you're going to catch him. And then you're just not going to let him go. Cause all mm-hmm. you have to do is finish next to him. Right. Um, and so I, he outswam me by a good bit. Um, but I almost caught him on the bike and we basically came out of T2 together. Um, and that just kind of set the stage. Uh, for, well, I guess um, I was working so hard on the bike, I probably wasn't drinking as much as I should. And we mm-hmm. came out of T2 together, and uh, it was hot. I mean, uh, I think I think the actual temperature was, like, probably in the mid-90s, but mm-hmm. it was just 
black pavement and exposed black exposed pavement the whole run um and uh just i don't know it was just we were just hurting each other like every now and then we just put in the surge just because we went out at like 5 30 even though neither of us could hold it and Mm -hmm. uh you know it was just a battle of wills um and then right before at the last turnaround so about a mile and a half to go or whatever um he stopped and got a a nice rag and some water and i was like i finally dropped him i got this and so i just was running by myself and i think not having him next to me pushing me right there but having him behind me i just kind of thought the battle was won Mm -hmm. and i kind of I don't know. I, I had done myself over way before then, I guess. But uh, my body at that point realized what a state it was in, um, and I ended up just kind of passing out. Mm-hmm. It was it was really strange. I remember I was kind of just running, and I was like, "Man, I don't really feel well. I think I'll slow down a little bit." Slowed down a little bit, and then walked. And then next thing I knew, I was on the ground. I remember uh, someone coming up to me who was running the other direction, and like pushing me around and like I think someone helped me carry me from where I was in the middle of the road to the shade of a telephone pole which was cast in the middle of the road which is like Mm -hmm. the only shade around uh, which is actually super helpful Um, and then I was just so thirsty and I waited and waited and the gator finally came to take me to the medical tent then uh, they didn't have any water with them and I it was I was kind of in and out of consciousness and it was it was actually a really scary experience because I had never felt that thirsty and like I'd never like lost consciousness right like that. So I was kind of in and out of I don't know. I would remember like vividly thinking that I was going to die because um, I just wasn't in the state of mind. I wasn't in like a logical state of mind, I guess. Yeah. Um, and, you know. Right after that whole, like, you know, I got to the Meditan and got an IV and I was fine, obviously. Um, but uh, right after that experience, you know, some people were, a lot of my friends were telling me, oh, you know, that's amazing. You were able to push that much and mad respect and all that. Um, and the one person who I think didn't say that was Rich Viola, who's the CEO of Everyman Jack. Mm-hmm. And I think his opinion stood out the most to me and was the, the thing I took away most from that was... Uh, you know, why, why would I do that? Like, how did I not know my body well enough to know that I was about to pass out? Mm -hmm. And like, I felt like I was going to die. Why was it worth it to me to push so hard that I might feel like I was dying? Or, you know, maybe I could, if if there hadn't been a a gator or someone to take me there, there was not an aid station there or anyone to take me around. I I very well could have had heat exhaustion or, or, you know, Mm -hmm. something bad could have happened. Um, and so that, I guess that was kind of uh, the, the real thing I took away from that was not like, man, I know how to push myself, but man, I need to know when not to push myself. Mm-hmm. It was it was great to know that I would like I'd always, you know, read stories and like, you know, every time there's a big national international marathon, there's always a video that comes out of someone crawling across the finish line. And I always thought, you know, man, I wish I had the guts to go out and race my heart out like that and you know, just make it across the line. And in this case, I made it a quarter mile from the finish line and didn't cross the finish line. Mm-hmm. I think uh, I think that was, I learned a lot more from that than I would have from winning the race. And uh, man, uh, yeah, it was just a scary and harrowing experience. 
one that I will not forget. You know, I think it's kind of like interesting that you came away from it. Like, it sounds like, especially with Rich's help, they're like thinking about what well, now isn't a really positive thing. Cause I, I almost feel like there's this, just like you said, you know, watching those, the videos and the photos of people crawl up across the finish line and be like, you know, they're really getting it out to the end. And just, there's this almost like mythos of, you know, or like heroism to be able to push yourself that far. And, you know, like I, I've actually had, I didn't pass out, but I had a kind of similar experience at um, 70.3 Santa Cruz where the last five miles, like I was feeling great for most of the run by about a mile eight, I was starting to feel a little off and basically I didn't get enough food. The the short version is that my day almost didn't get started because of a, a bike wheel that was flat. I got a spare from a bike tech and got to race, but then I didn't have my nutrition set up. So I ran the last five miles with like tunnel vision, like literally black yeah, yeah. coming in on, on my I vision. And, and, and there was, <laughs> there was like 50, 60 year old guys passing me, you know, near the end, which not, not to disparage 50, 60 year old guys, but really shouldn't be being passed. Right. Right. <laughs> um, and, you know, at the time, because my priority was so, so focused on, like, pushing as hard as I absolutely could, I think I came away with it from, like, almost a positive experience of, you know, that's, I'm glad to know that I am committed enough yeah. to push that hard. But, but having kind of the ability to step back when you shift priorities, it's kind of like you have with, you know, knowing that like your PhD is more important to you. You're like, that is some dumb shit. Like why? Yeah. <laughs> it's just, it's just a race. Like, what does it even matter? Yeah. And yeah. So it's, it's always this kind of interesting dichotomy where it's like, you want to know that you can push yourself, but at the same time, it's like, man, it's just a race. Like, yeah. It, even if you win, it, is it really going to matter? It, you know, if you died, like, right. Yeah, you got so. a family that loves you and friends that love you and no one's going to care if you get second place. <laughs> yeah. You know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No one so. cares. No one cares if you get first place, honestly. Like <laughs> Right. You're doing it for you. So. Yeah, and that's that's the like I don't know, just the the kind of crazy thing is like I mean, you understand, especially being around all the EMJ guys cuz they're all, you know, very competitive and talented enough to win. So it's like all of this drive to win, but then it's like we, we're we're trying to win something that we've made up, you know, because a sport isn't, it's not a thing in and of itself. Like triathlon isn't, it only exists because we made it yeah. a thing. It's like we're trying to win this thing that we made and like what does it even matter? Which gets a little esoteric, <laughs> which yeah. I'm prone to do, but um i don't know it kind of has, kind of takes time to step back sometimes when that kind of stuff goes on so i i saw your post about that you know race from a couple of years ago so i was really curious about what happened and what you took away from it so yeah i think uh that was not what i was expecting to take away from it when i walked when i got to the car to go home but mm -hmm. talking to rich after that was when i was like wow you know that was it's a different insight and it just totally changed the way I looked at it. Mm -hmm. Does that, I mean, does that play into your decision to focus more on 
You it did, didn't directly. You know? It didn't directly, but it, it might have. You know, um, I'm doing this because I enjoy doing this. It's fun. Like, uh, mm. if I stopped having fun, I would stop doing it because I'm not, you know, there's no money in this for me. Um, there's no, it's it's only for fun. Right. And uh, if you're almost, like, having a race like that once, even if I had, you know, maybe finished but not quite had such a harrowing experience, maybe I would have thought, well, that was cool. But, like, it hurt a lot. Like, I would not, mm. like, want to do that on a weekly basis. Um, so, yeah, like, even if I, even if, I hadn't had that insight. Like, it's great when you go out there and you have a race where you just like feel like it's you know you're pushing yourself, but like you're like this feels effortless. Like I'm just going so fast. Mm -hmm. This feels so smooth. You know, that's the like race feeling that I want, not the like, you know, I'm suffering so much. You know, am I going to make it to the finish line? That's not the that's not a fun race for me. Yeah, it's, it's from the outside. I like I almost get. Maybe you, I, I assume you've probably had a similar experience where people almost look at us like masochists, like you must be suffering so much. Oh, it's man. like, well, obviously we go through some amount of suffering, but like, I hate, like you I said, I, I don't know. I don't know that anybody's like looking to suffer. Like they're looking for that day where it feels effortless. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I, I, I hate when people talk about, or I, I, sh I shouldn't say hate, that's a strong word. And okay. I don't hate anyone who would say that. I just feel like you know, that's dishonest. You're not, you're not do like, you don't, don't, don't know why you're like inflicting this torture on yourself or people who say those things. Like if, uh, if I'm being honest, like I want to be an ambassador for the sport, the sports bought me a lot of joy and I don't want to like tell everyone, like a lot of people have no history of running, swimming or biking right. and are going to come, you know, you're going to see your Facebook post where you're like, you know, that sucked. I hurt so much. Uh, why do I do this torture to myself? At least I got this gold medal. Um, and then, you know, like, yeah, that, that good for him. That doesn't sound fun for me, but it's like, no, you know, this, I have a lot of fun doing this. I'm like challenging myself in a way that I feel comfortable and I get to decide how uncomfortable I get on a given day. Mm -hmm. uh, there's not like any kind of masochism or kind of anything ulterior like that, I guess. Unless I, I mean, for me, I guess there might there might be someone out there. I, I'm sure there's somebody, but you know, just as a general consensus, it's like no one that I feel like I've connected with has genuinely made me feel like they enjoy suffering. Right. <laughs> I, I it's kind of similar, but like I feel like not only is it a process to kind of of like self betterment. There's there's which I think there's almost like a genetic component to like some people are more predisposed to want to like better themselves. You know, I used to ask the question of like, why isn't that guy as motivated as I am? Mm -hmm. I kind of feel like there's some kind of predisposition there, but as far as like suffering goes, I kind of have a, since you've been around all the EMJ guys, I'll see, I'm curious what your opinion is. I have this theory that's almost like, people that have had a history of suffering almost have an easier time like using triathlon or running as an outlet. So say somebody was like abused as a kid or like I can't, Lionel Sanders kind of backs this yeah, up for me a little that, bit. That's you know, with his background. You're saying that. Yeah. So it's like he went through hell and then like he just, at least the mythos of Lionel Sanders, cause I've never talked to him, you know, 
puts himself through a lot of suffering to be very, very successful. So, you know, have you talking to the EMJ guys and, other, you know, other guys, do you like, do you think there's any credence to my, to my theory? I can't say I, I, I wouldn't say that anything, any of my experiences with anyone on the team would validate that theory, okay. but I wouldn't say that there's like a clear, like, anti or uh, disagreement right i know lionel's an interesting case and i again i i don't know him either um but you know based on the image that he's put out of himself or that i've inferred from the image that he's put mm -hmm. out for himself i get the idea that you know he switched from one addictive thing like a negative addictive type of obsession to a different obsession and you know he he my again my my impression is that you know he he just has a personality that is obsessive and mm -hmm. he could do it in a negative way and he figured out how to use it in a positive way and so i say good for him um yeah. and i think a lot of people on emj probably have you know different obsessions but uh i i haven't noticed anything like that in in that okay. sample yeah, I'm just curious. It's like no, no. I, I, I guess, it's, it sounds it sounds legit. Yeah. <laughs> well, there's a lot of pseudoscience yeah. that can sound <laughs> legit. Right, right. I'm always just curious about like so. One of my undergraduate degrees is in psychology, so like I'm always very like. And I told you my other degree is in math, so I you know people are always like, well, what the hell is that combination? But um, just personal interest. But anyway, so I'm very like interested in in motivation, like. Where does motivation come from? How do people get motivated? Like, how do we even get to this point where we're working out 15, 16, 17 hours a week and enjoying I hope, it? Like, I hope it's because you're enjoying it. Like, I think that's right. the motivation. You know, right. I, I mean, I, I, I enjoy I training. One more thing than that racing. is common about a lot of the EMJ guys is a lot of them had some kind of athletic background growing up where they learned to enjoy being outside, exercising, whatever. Um, and they kind of carried that through and found a way to continue it into triathlon, whether or not that was, you know, their initial sport or related to their initial sport. Mm -hmm. It's just kind of to like exercising. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, um, basically like one, one of my best friends who I, who I met through triathlon, his name's Kevin. Um, he wanted to be a professional soccer player and he played, um, in some of the, like the minor leagues, USL, I think, is the league he played in and, and couldn't quite make it to MLS play. So, like, he transferred over to triathlon to continue that, like, competitive outdoor, you know, thing going on. So, it, he kind of has that same same gene. Didn't didn't have the running background. Like, I, I've been running since I was 12. So, it was kind of a natural progression for me um, to get rid of, the, like, the, the injury-prone atmosphere yeah, yeah. of college <laughs> and move on to something where I'm – not injured quite so often um but yeah um so i want to talk a little give you a little bit of time to actually talk about your phd a little bit um do you spend any time on reddit at all no not really. okay okay so so I'll, i'm familiar with reddit but i don't use it okay that, that's that's okay so there's there's a there's a subreddit which is reddit is just a forum with sub forums basically so when i say subreddit it's a sub forum so there's a sub forum called explain like i'm five and it's basically people asking very complicated often science questions 
um, and they want it really dumbed down for them. So can you give the explain like I'm five version of what combustion dynamics is and what the heck you're doing? Okay. Um, so if you've ever sat around a campfire, um, you'll hear this kind of roaring noise, right? Like this kind of what we'd call it is broadband noise. Basically, uh, there's not like a, a tone to it. If you sing, you kind of think, okay, you know, there's typically one frequency and we call that frequency a tone. Um, but when you have fire, it tends to, the wrinkles in the flame tend, I mean, uh, when gas passes through a flame, it expands and that expansion makes sound waves, acoustic okay. waves. Um, and we hear those um, as different frequencies depending on how the flame is wrinkled. Um, so generally speaking, a flame excites a, a wide range of frequencies, and so it doesn't have like a particular tone. Um, but if you think of something like um, a gas turbine um, on a plane or in a power plant, um, the kind of like confined geometry of those combustors acts kind of like a trumpet where it kind of picks a tone. So you're basically um, putting in this broadband noise and it's filtering that out and giving you a tone. And okay. so what happens, um, once you pick a tone like that, that tone tends to resonate in that environment. Um, and then it'll wrinkle the flame. That, that tone itself will then wrinkle the flame to produce more disturbances at that tone. Okay. And so this kind of, this process kind of continues and it's like a self-excited feedback loop mm -hmm. where wrinkles in the flame excite this tone, this tone then feeds back into whatever's producing the wrinkles in the flame um, to generate more tones. Um, and this is a huge problem in the like gas turbine industry. I mean, um, I think 70% uh, of the costs that like a power plant faces um, has to do, or a gas turbine plant, has to do with repairing the hardware that's damaged by instabilities like that. So that includes employee salaries, uh, that includes um, any other law or legal expenses or anything like that. So mm -hmm. out of their, the, I, I, it does exclude their fuel, fuel costs. Um, but like the majority of their expenses has to do with repairing damaged things um, that occur from these kind of instabilities because, um, you know, you think of a trumpet and it's not that loud. Um, but what, what those tones are are pressure oscillations and those pressure oscillations actually get so strong that they can uh, cause the flame to move in such a way that it damages the combustor itself. Um, okay, so, so is it, the, so, so is it the, the oscillations that are causing the damage or the effect on the the fuel that's the, it, and, the, and then the changing of the fuel that's causing the damage yeah it's 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 complicated and it can be it's usually the the fact that like it pushes the flame into somewhere where a flame is not supposed to be okay um but it can all basically if you have enough pressure change you can cause flow to flow backwards or flow to go way faster than it normally would um and so you're just kind of pushing this flame all over like if you think of you know a candle you thought about you know waving that candle around the room without it blowing out mm. um it would find something that it wasn't supposed to be next to and it would <laughs> it would either catch it on fire or damage it somehow right. um so you can kind of think of it like that where you know you're if you're an engineer and you're designing a combustor you're going to design a flame to go here and you're going to design something else to go here mm. and you know every place everything has its place 
and these instabilities are kind of mixing that all around. Okay. Um, and I'm sorry if I'm going, I think, I might not be explaining this as concisely as it would be nice if I could. No, I mean, there's, well, especially in the, like, explain like I'm five subreddit, there's only, like, so far you can dumb down. You have to use things like combustor and, like, you know, like there are certain yeah, yeah. words that you need to use, otherwise it doesn't even make sense anymore. Yeah, yeah. Um, but um, basically what I study is, you know, this combustion dynamics is a large part of it, but I really study the the fluid mechanical part, which has which basically means... Um, I talked about how like the the flame generates these tones, and then the environment uh, amplifies certain tones, and then the way I'm really interested in how do those tones then couple back with the flow to wrinkle the flame in such a way that those tones are generated in the first place. So, okay, so you're so you're interested in in essentially the second and subsequential parts of the feedback loop. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. The, it's called the hydrodynamic part of the feedback loop. So how okay. to, you basically induce all, these are called vortices. They're little kind of wrinkles in the flow, basically. Um, and how do those wrinkles in the flow wrinkle the flame and then excite those instabilities? Okay. Um, so how do you actually study that? Like what, like what kind of instruments, I mean, how do you go about measuring something like that? Uh, so we actually at Georgia Tech, the combustion lab here is a it's a really great facility. And I am not an experimentalist, but I look at a lot of experimental data. Okay. Um, and basically, the way you do it is you take pictures with really fancy cameras. Um, okay. Uh, so basically, um, if you think about if you went out on a snowy day and you took pictures really fast, uh, like in, uh, like with a camera, basically you'd see snowflakes moving, right? Mm -hmm. Um, and if you looked at two frames between those uh, pictures of snowflakes, you could kind of say, okay, you know, I can see from this first frame, one snowflake moved from here to here, and this snowflake moved from here to here, just by looking at the difference between the two frames, right? Mm -hmm. And so um, if you do that on with, you know, super precise cameras and scientific instruments, you can basically do the same thing in this combustor environment where you seed it with these tiny little particles and then take really good pictures really fast, I'm talking nanosecond type right. speeds. Um, and uh, from that, you're able to like infer a velocity field. Um, and so you can study how, you know, if, if I'm, if I basically, you just put a speaker next to it and you turn on the speaker at different tones and you look at how the flow behaves with different forcing, you know, like styles, different amplitudes, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. um, and you're able to, Ex uh, explicitly kind of gauge this flow response. Okay. Um, so this is just a curiosity. It's really a side note. It doesn't delve too deep no. in anything, but um, I'm curious, like, are, are, is, are the pictures being taken in visible spectrum or are you working like an infrared because you're working with like combustibles or like, how do you know, like, like what are you working with as far as like actually taking those snapshots? Yeah. So these are visible spectrum okay. uh, snapshots. Um, you can change, so typically these are done with green lasers. Basically, uh, if you just take really fast high-speed pictures, there's not enough exposure for your for a camera to like see the particles. Mm -hmm. And so to, to generate the kind of expo or exposure we need, we shine a really bright laser on the particles. Um, and so those, par those lasers are typically green um, for the experiments that we've been doing. Okay. Uh, 
I say we, but again, I'm not the one doing these experiments. Yeah, I'm yeah, yeah. The data. You're, um, you're the figurehead right now, so I mean, it's it's okay. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> um, yeah, so uh, you shine a really bright green laser at them, um, and then you look at how those tiny particles kind of dance around in response to the different tones you play them. Okay, so are the particles, so you know, obviously I'm coming at this from like a, I know absolutely nothing, so right, right. just treat, treat me as a, a plebeian. Um, are the particles actually like pre-combustion particles or post-combustion or a mixture of the both or, you know, like... That's a good question. Uh, they're, they're non... They are solid particles that we kind of... So we kind of mix a fuel and oxidizer ahead okay. of time. Um, and those are both gaseous. Right. Um, and then in addition to that sort of gaseous thing, which is actually what burns, we inject all these tiny little micrometer-sized particles or several micrometer-sized particles. Mm -hmm. um, and those are what we actually see. Okay, so, so it's an, scatters off those particles. And okay, we take, it's, it's, so it's an indicator, not the the not the, the flow itself. itself. Yeah, that's actually a really good point. Is some you have to uh, do your analysis correctly to make sure that you're using the right size and weight particles right. to accurately kind of represent what the flow is doing. Right, because it, it's it's um, it reminds me of this Buddhist quote. It's, it's it's the finger pointing to the moon, not the moon itself. And like basically, like you're not actually staring at the thing that you're studying. You're staring at the thing that's pointing to the thing. Yes. Yeah. So you can't get confused between the two because there is right, it's right. not exactly the same thing. Right. So like so, I mean, it's always it's always curious to me like how people get to where they are. So like, how do you how do you get from being a you know a kindergartner to working on combustion dynamics like? You know, obviously a truncated timeline, but I mean, how did you get interested in what you're doing? Um, so in undergrad, I had an awesome professor who pulled me aside after class one day, I think sophomore year, and basically said, what are you going to do after college? And I, you know, kind of said what I thought I was supposed to say. Oh, you know, <laughs> I'm looking for an internship now and then I'll get a job and, you know, whatever, I'll be an engineer and that's that, you know, I, I didn't really have like a, this was not like a lifelong goal for me. Um, but I had that conversation with him and he invited me to join his research group um, and to kind of see what I thought about research. Mm -hmm. um, at that point, I was also, I, I, I worked at two years for Caterpillar in my undergrad. Okay. Um, kind of got the big company and industry experience in engineering. And I didn't really like that. Um, so I kind of knew I didn't really want to go on that route, but I had a really great experience uh, working in this research environment. Um, it's really fun. You you ask questions and you kind of you ask hard questions and questions that hopefully no one else has ever asked and trying to figure out a way to answer them. Um, and basically, I've spent the last almost five years trying to ask questions and figure out how to answer them. So it's a really kind of cool and frustrating sometimes process, but it can be really rewarding. Um, and I had, I guess, enough rewarding experiences in that first exposure to it to kind of convince me that this is something I'd like to do more of. Mm -hmm. um, and then from there, it's just a matter of writing applications. And I, I never really had my eye on combustion dynamics. Um, I liked math. I did a minor in math mm -hmm. in addition to mechanical engineering. And um, this is a very math-heavy research area. Right. Uh, so that, that kind of set me up for it. Um, and I knew I wanted to do something where I could kind of exploit my background in math 
to, to do to get a head start. Um, so this kind of seemed like a good way to do that. But really, when I came here, I was looking at I talked to professors who are doing modeling of uh, brains, um, you know, nonlinear networks and stuff like that. And I talked to, you know, all sorts of other different people from different backgrounds. Um, the really cool thing about science is it's a process um, mm -hmm. and you develop an expertise in a field. But what you're really working on is the process of like, how do I ask intelligent questions and design experiments that answer those questions and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. It's problem solving. It just, you know, right. if you enjoy solving problems, then I think it's something you can enjoy. You just got to learn how to enjoy it. Yeah, I see that. See that thought like enjoying problem solving is, is how I ended up being a math major. <laughs> yeah. It's like I, I decided after calculus in high school, I was like, no more math. And then I was like, oh, it's only 15 hours for a math minor. And then I was like, well, why don't I just, it's only one more class per semester for a math major. So I just continued for it. But I like, I enjoyed the problem solving. So I definitely can like empathize. I, I don't know that I was interested in the math just for math's sake, but I definitely loved the journey of like figuring out how to do proofs and like understanding the logic behind all this, you know, all these different I'll call them systems, but different fields. Yeah. Um, so like it's it's definitely like easy to to sympathize with you. And there's um, a parallel with triathlon too, and that you're kind of your your goal is something that you very, you spend very little time achieving your goal in triathlon and in mm -hmm. science. Most of it is in the kind of nitty gritty daily grind. Um, and if you're able to find a way to enjoy that, you know, daily struggle, then you can find a way. I mean then you enjoy the whole process. Mm -hmm. So you're looking at um, once you finish your thesis, <laughs> as we are talking about before we get started, you're, you finished everything up. You just have your thesis to write, correct? Yeah, yeah. So after you're done, you're looking at postdoctoral work to do more research in academic field, like at yeah. an institution? That, that is something that appeals to me. That is not something that I have a direct track onto at this point yeah uh, like i mean it very well could happen but i've not you know really narrowed um it down to exactly that mm -hmm. uh, exactly a specific position um i don't know I, I taught so this semester this past semester i taught my first course and that was something i really enjoyed doing mm -hmm. um and i'd always kind of wondered if i would i thought i would um and i i did um and so i've uh you know i think that an academic setting could be something I enjoy, maybe not right away, but you know, either much later on or soon later on. Um, I think my my biggest focus is going to be on getting something kind of close to home um, in Atlanta here, because my girlfriend is going to be another two or so years um, in her PhD. Mm -hmm. um, so I'd like to stay local, and there are a couple of prospects in this area, but uh, nothing set in stone yet. Okay. Um, I'm going to go off the deep end, and this is just just as a curiosity. I think I so I always look at like people's Instagram, social media, and kind of stuff. I, I think I saw you had taken a trip to India a couple of years ago. Yeah, I did. So I'm just curious, like, you know, I think our generation is everybody's interested in travel, but it seems like almost hyper focused in our generation. Like, we don't care about buying stuff; we just want to go places. So I'm curious, like. Why did you go to India? Like, how, how did you end up on India, uh, you know, of all the places you could go instead of, you know, going and partying somewhere? Like, so how, did you, not, how did you end up there? It was not a, uh, a, a vacation 
it was a really cool trip. I okay. Really, I like enjoyed a lot. Um, but it was it was for my um, research. We have a collaborator um, at the Indian Institute of Science in Mangalore. Okay. Um, and so I spent roughly three weeks, I think, um, in his lab there, uh, working with one of his senior grad students who kind of mentored me and taught me so much. It was a great experience where, you know, it was, you know, more than 12 hours in the lab every day, just trying to soak up everything I could. Um, but in addition to that, I got to get out and take some pictures for Instagram. So that was fun. <laughs> uh, went to a, a Hindu temple, which was interesting and uh, got to go around and try different foods. And um, one of the cool things about being a triathlon when you travel or being in triathlon when you travel is you get to go run around or try to I, I ended up not swimming or biking at all, but just mm -hmm. to run around the city and kind of explore. Um, and that was really cool. It's so different than here. Mm -hmm. um, but at the same time, there's so much commonality. I think travel is a really good way to see that. And it sounds super cliche, but you go around the world expecting to see a lot of different stuff. And, you know, you get there at first, you think, wow, this is so different. And then you stay there a week longer and you think, wow, we're really the same. So that was mm -hmm. my experience in a nutshell. I was like, if I'm anywhere new, whether I'm walking or running, I always feel like that's the best way to like explore a city. Like if you're in a car, things go by so quickly, you don't really get to absorb everything. So like, I definitely like to be on foot, whether I'm, you know, depending on how fast I'm moving, but I rather, I like to be on foot to kind yeah. of like see, actually I, see things. When I was in a car in India, in Bangalore, mm -hmm. I was more scared to look out the window than <laughs> I think. I, I didn't have time to think about sightseeing or looking around. Fair enough. Um, <laughs> So I got one last question for you, and I ask this of everybody because it's always different, and I love to hear what it is. Um, so if you only get to eat one thing for recovery for the rest of your life, what do you choose? It's Taco Tuesday. I got to go tacos. <laughs> See, like Todd, Todd chose peanut butter and jelly sandwich. I was like, he didn't go cinnamon roll. I would have sworn he did not. He did yeah, not go cinnamon. I gave him a hard time about that, but um, so, so you're really eating tacos after? Like you go, you go do a hard set, and then you're really eating tacos afterwards. I, I love tacos. Yeah, I'm gonna go home and have tacos after this. <laughs> Great. I'm, taco I'm, hey, I'm I'm glad you're consistent, Chris. <laughs> I I appreciate your time today. I'll uh, I'll let you go, and you can go get some tacos. Thank you very much. Thanks for coming on.